Hello, I'm David Gunger, and welcome to Undaunted. This podcast is brought to you by Telos. Telos' mission is to help form and equip communities of peacemakers to heal conflict. A little warning for those of you who may be affected by hearing stories about violence or trauma. The following podcast has some pretty intense moments. Today's guest is our very own Greg Khalil. So there's three stories I often like to share about the challenge of the peacemaker. There's a story about a man in a white shirt, a man in a red shirt, and a girl with a pink backpack. Man in the white shirt. My parents were totally insane in the best possible way. So when I was six years old, my dad was a theologian and my mother was an archaeologist. They had an archaeological dig in Syria, excavating this very early Christian site. And they decided that it would be a great thing for the family to drive from our home in San Diego to Syria, literally. So we got in our blue and white SUV with California license plates and the big USA sticker on the bumper. And we crisscrossed the lower 48 states until we got up to Montreal, put our truck on a ship, sailed to Rotterdam, crisscrossed around Europe, went up, visited family in Denmark, then down to Greece, got on another ship, which broke down in the middle of the Mediterranean, eventually landed the northern coast of Syria, and then drove to our new apartment in Damascus. And my first day in Syria, something incredibly dramatic happened that haunts me to this day. We'd been on the road for months, and we went and we registered at my new school, the American School of Damascus, which at this time was right across the street from the headquarters of the Syrian Air Force. What we didn't appreciate, this was 1981. This was just the beginning of uprising, a Syrian uprising against Bashar al-Assad's father, the current president of Syria. It was against his father, Hafez al-Assad, the former president, an Islamist uprising. So we just went and registered at my school, and I was going to be in the second grade, and we drove a few blocks away, and my dad parked on a bustling Damascus street on a hot September summer day. And he and my brother got out of our truck to go to a sweet shop. And my mom um, was sitting in the front seat. I was sitting in the back. I was playing with my little Rubik's Cube. Like, I'd been in this truck for four four months. I had my toys and I was total dork and still am, but like loved, you know, playing with my little Rubik's Cube. And I remember my mom, she was pointing across a row of apartment buildings to the Syrian Air Force building. She said, oh, look at that high rise there, Gregory. Remember, that's just right across the street from your, from your new school. And I'm like, oh yeah, of, of course. And then seconds later, the world just totally changed. There was this huge sound and the sky went from sun to black. The ground started shaking and then it was just raining this pulverized ash, um, which we would later learn was concrete and gore. And what had happened is somebody, an Islamist insurgent, in a car packed full of explosives, drove up the steps of the Syrian Air Force headquarters and blew it up taking half the building, killing more than 80 people just right where we were a few minutes earlier. And we were fine in the car because we were shielded by all these rows of apartment buildings, but we were close enough where we felt the impact of this. 
and we didn't know what was happening. But I, I remember, you know, sitting and, and looking around and my brother and my dad were away um, and my mom was t- totally shocked and we were looking at the street and sure enough, the, the sun started to reemerge and we were looking for cues from the street. And at the time of the blast, there was this man in a crisp white shirt walking right in front of our SUV. And we were close enough that he lost his footing and he caught himself on the hood of our truck. And then he stood up and I remember I'm looking at him, we're looking for cues and he just brushes himself off as if nothing had happened. He didn't even look. People were dying just a few blocks away. And it was like the street just went back to normal. And I remember crying to my mom, mommy, is this normal? Is this normal? And she didn't know how to respond because she herself was in shock. But what we later learned is that in a way this was normal. Unfortunately, during our year in Syria, it was fantastical. We literally lived half our time in a room of a crusader castle built around the best preserved Roman amphitheater in the Middle East as we worked on our archaeological dig. It was like this fantastical childhood, but there was all of this violence there as well that we experienced that we sort of, you know, narrowly escaped death on literally a number of occasions until we eventually fled during Israel's war with southern Lebanon. There was this um, moment later during our, our, our year there in which Hafez al-Assad decided to go in and take care of the insurgents. He went into Hamam and he massacred all the insurgents. 25,000 people, their families, their neighbors, their animals, everyone. Scorched earth policy, which, as we know, paused the insurgency for a couple decades, but all of these forces came back stronger than ever, more determined than ever to upset sort of Uh, the status quo and to revenge what had happened to their families. But what was important from my understanding, because that I've, you know, seen and witnessed and experienced a lot of violence at different points in my life um, that was much more explicit. But the man in the white shirt haunted me because it was like, how could he not even look? And what I started to learn later is that what that man lived in is he knew something that I didn't know. He lived in a society where to even see dissent, to acknowledge dissent, was to dissent. And to dissent was to die. So what he knew in his bones was like, just be glad I'm alive. I can go back to my wife and my kids. Even though his body shook in that moment, what he understood was that dissent was something was completely off the table. So the question that the man in the white shirt should pose to everyone who seeks to be a peacemaker is how do we let the abnormal become normal? How do we tolerate absolute injustice so that we can turn a blind eye and it results in these extreme situations, whether in Syria or whether even here in our own communities? And I wanna put that forward to every peacemaker. How does the abnormal become normal and what's our role in creating and sustaining that unjust scenario? in the red shirt. I didn't encounter the man in the red shirt until 
my early 30s. When we left Syria, I wanted nothing to do with the Arab part of my identity. I wanted to get back to San Diego and I wanted to play Foursquare with Susie. Like that's all I wanted and go to the beach, but I couldn't. Like I was rewired differently after this set of experiences and seeing the world so much differently than everybody else that I knew and all of my peers. So I kind of retreated and became a really odd kid and actually retreated into the world of music. I became a violinist. For me, music was, was just, it was a world where everything could make sense because the world didn't make sense. Because in music, even violence could be beautiful and beauty has meaning. Whereas in life, none of this made sense. None of it was beautiful, it was just horrible. And so music represented a place where I could negotiate all of this and find meaning through beauty. And so that's what I did for a long period of my life. But I couldn't turn away because I had all this family in Bethlehem just like me who we spoke to every week you know long story short later in life I, I got to spend a lot of time with them and I I just said to myself this makes no sense how is it that I have every opportunity like people can be racist in the states but I I can be anything I want if I work hard enough maybe it'll be a little harder for me being Palestinian being a little weird whatever but I can still create a life that I'm proud of. I can become whatever I want to be in America. Whereas my cousins born in Bethlehem were just as smart as me, just as motivated, many actually much more, much smarter, much more diligent. Couldn't get jobs. They could get educations, but finding a job that paid a few hundred dollars a month or a thousand dollars a month carving little pieces of olive wood for tourists in a place where gas electricity meat is much more expensive than it is here in the states trapped in these little virtual prisons that they couldn't leave or travel from with different roads based on your ethnicity under the thumb of a foreign military that's funded by my government i was like wait a second i can't turn away from this my career in music didn't work out and i i decided I had to go to law school and see if I could if I could do something for my family and renegotiate my my relationship to this part of the world and my identity because I had all this privilege I had to do something so first real job out of law school was on the Palestinian negotiating team part of this international unit set up to advise them and the first thing that I got to work on in 2004 was something historic the Palestinians took Israel's barrier, the wall that it was building, not along the border with the West Bank, but deep inside the West Bank to the International Court of Justice. So I was part of the team that went to the International Court of Justice. Um, it was the first thing that I did, and we won. At the highest court in the world, we got this advisory opinion, came back, it said a couple of really, really important things. One, that all portions of the the wall barrier built within occupied territory, meaning not on the border with Israel or not on the boundary, the so-called green line with Israel rather, uh, were illegal. All of Israel's settlements are illegal and the international community should play no role in supporting this illegal scenario. It was an advisor opinion, so it's not binding, but the, the law that it was stating and affirming is considered authoritative. Um, and I saw this like as a huge moment in Palestinian history and you know, an actual legal opinion, and it affirmed legally, not just politically, the two-state solution, which I then saw as probably the only 
uh, reasonable way out for both Israelis and Palestinians to create futures in which both peoples could be safe, in which both peoples could prosper and flourish. So this happened, and there was a little thing that happened to me, which was just a small twist of fate. So I drafted an op-ed for a Palestinian leader, the official opinion on this historic opinion. Um, and I did a lot of stuff like this. We submitted it to the New York Times, and they accepted it. Uh, but no Palestinian leader wanted to sign their name to it. And so somebody's name had to go out. I drafted it. And so they're just like, put it in Greg's name. And, you know, I'm 29 years old. I'm just a few months on this job, like working on this, this thing, which is getting all this attention from all over the world. And I was a little taken aback by this. And quite frankly, there had been other lawyers who'd been working on this case for years who, you know, deserve to have their, their byline, whatever. That's a whole nother story. But so this comes out in the New York Times, it's translated into Arabic and a number of other languages. And so people start to actually know me locally. Fast forward a couple years. I'm walking through the Manara, which is a central square or traffic circle in Ramallah. I'm walking home one day and a couple guys stop me. They want to ask me, they say, hey, you know, you're, you were involved in that decision, right? And I said, yes. And, and you said it was a, a good thing. And I'm like, yeah, you know. And so they said, what's happening with it? Well, I said, you know, the settlements are expanding. The, the barrier is still being erected and not on the green line, but deep in Palestinian territory. Some portions of the barrier then and today cut 45% the width of the West Banks, taking most access points to water, Palestinian room for development, agricultural land, all the things that Palestinians need for an independent economy as, as Israel keeps expanding onto more of this land. So it's pretty significant. So I'm, I'm talking about this. And then I said, you know what, but it's a good thing. I said, this isn't another hot air UN resolution because there's been hundreds of UN resolutions about Palestine that have led nowhere. I said, you know what? This is an actual legal opinion. It gives us rights. Just watch. This will give Palestinians an opportunity to actually change the reality on the ground. And I said, it's even good for Israel long term. This is, this is, you know, and then this guy, I remember in the red t-shirt, he just stopped me in my tracks. He's like, listen. When will you ever understand? These things that you call languages of law and justice, they don't apply to us. We're weak. The only time that people see us is when we make noise. And I didn't know what to say in that moment because I knew exactly what he was saying and what he was intimating, which I'm sure included the possibility of violence against civilians, was and is totally against my moral code. Completely wrong. But I thought back to that man in the white shirt. What do you do? Every option that you pursue to redress a legitimate grievance is shut. Every nonviolent option. You go to the UN, you get these resolutions. You go to court, you win the court case. Nothing has any capacity whatsoever to change your reality. Unwittingly, this necessarily incentivizes a violent discourse. And that's what we see happening on the ground in so many parts of the world. I do not want to legitimize in any way whatsoever terror or violence against any civilians, no matter the perpetrator, no matter the target. Quite the contrary. This is what I've devoted my entire life to changing. 
But I do want to say the challenge to the peacemaker is when we don't look at these systemic questions, what the incentives are, when we don't take them seriously and we don't provide avenues for people's voices to not just be heard, but to have impact on their own lives in ways that they define as meaningful. When we shut off all those channels, do we not become complicit in the violence that we see? So if we want to be peacemakers, must we not look at the context too? Must we not consider the incentives and the structures that surround the average person out there who's looking at their world and saying, I was born into this mess. This is wrong. I want to have impact. And if my body is not going to be valued, if it's going to be destroyed no matter what I do, maybe I should use it to at least change things. Not that that's the right decision, that's the wrong decision. But if we're serious about peacemaking, we have to be serious about providing people with options. So man in the white shirt illustrates the choice of your average person. Man in the red shirt illustrates the increasing choice of people when you have no avenue. girl with a pink backpack. So 2014, I was with a couple very close musician friends in Nablus. And I took them to the refugee camp called Balata, which is infamous in sort of the imagination about, about the conflict, the greatest number of suicide bombers from any single location in the second intifada, the second uprising against Israel came from Balata refugee camp. Balata is even known today for resistance against the Palestinian Authority. It's the most densely populated refugee camp um, in Palestine. The streets in Balata, many of the streets are so narrow, they're the width of an actual chair. So you can barely walk down these streets. So imagine living there, walking through these tiny, tiny streets. Of course, this was once tense, but after 70 years and people, you know, not everybody can leave, many do, but many people stay um, in this vulnerable situation. They just build cinder block upon cinder, cinder block, stretching it into the sky. And they have these narrow streets that you can't, you can barely walk down. So I was there with my friends. We were talking to um, a few residents and my friend Mahmoud, who lives there, was taking us on a, a little walk around the camp. And we happened to be there on Eid al-Istiqlal, which is an ironic holiday. It's Palestinian Independence Day celebrating the Palestinian Declaration of 1988, which, by the way, recognized um, Israel incorporated implicitly by incorporating UN resolutions about a two-state solution. But this is a national holiday within the PA-controlled territories. And the irony, of course, is there is no independent Palestinian state, but still there is this official holiday. So we're walking down one of these narrow streets, and this little girl with a pink backpack and a stack of books all the way up to her chin, propping them up, holding her arms underneath her, squeezing the books, is running through, and she's trying to get somewhere, and we're in her way. So she tries to squeeze through my legs, and the books just go falling to the ground. So my friends and I, you know, we start helping her pick up the books and, and stack them again under her chin, and she's, she's a little miffed. She doesn't want to have any of these like foreign foreigners just like you know, annoying her day. And my friend Mickey asks, 
Um, he says, Greg, I thought you said today was a holiday. Why, you know, is, is there school? Does she, why does she have all her books with her? And I said, I don't think so. Let me ask. And so we ask her, um, you know, is today's idealistic law? Like it's Independence Day. Um, is there school today? She says, no. And I said, so, so why do you have all your books with you? And she looks up and I will never forget this. It's one of those moments that you can't even imagine. And she looks up to me with this indignation. And she says, my education is my independence. And just storms off a little girl of about 10 years old with all these books, chiding us. We're in her way. She's got somewhere to go, something to do. And it's one of those moments in your life that is just so convicting because it's so joyous and it's so horrible. And let me tell you obviously why it's joyous. Yeah, you wanna run, you wanna get her a scholarship, you wanna help her out, do whatever you can because she's so extraordinary. But it's also devastating because I know that camp, I know that reality, and the reality is that there are thousands of little girls with her all over Palestine, all over Israel, all over Syria, throughout Gaza, thousands of girls with that same drive. It's not one girl that we should be seeking to help. There are thousands of girls who live in those societies. She's a refugee, she lives in a refugee camp. Yes, people make it out, but that's not the rule. They gotta fight because the system is set up to keep them there. She lives in a patriarchal society as a young little girl that doesn't value her becoming a doctor, an engineer, or an astronaut, even though there are programs that try to build these girls up and even though there are stories for kids that get out. She lives under Israeli occupation with a military coming into her camp often several times a week, abducting people, killing people, under extreme violence. She lives in one of these Swiss cheese holes of the West Bank where most Palestinians live, where they're controlled by this foreign military that they don't have a right to vote in and that they've lived under the control of for generations. She lives in a system, in a structure, in society that is set up to make her fail. And the reality, as inspiring as that story is, that girl that I met so many years ago probably did fail. And that's what's so traumatic about this. And the story that we have for so many peacemakers around the world, or people who want to congratulate themselves, as they should, is, oh, I helped that one girl. I helped that one student. And yes, that's good. But if we're serious about peacemaking, we have to recognize it's not just about the individual. It's not just taking one out of the system and leaving the cage there. It's about dismantling the cage. So let me leave you with a small poem from the 14th century Sufi poet, Muslim Sufi poet, Hafez, which I think illustrates the challenge that we're facing and encapsulates the story of the man in the white shirt, the man in the red shirt, and the girl with the pink backpack and what our role is in all of this. It's really simple. It says, the fool builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage who has to drop his head when the moon hangs low, keeps dropping keys all night long for all the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. The fool 
builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage who has to drop his head when the moon hangs low keeps dropping keys all night long for all the beautiful rowdy prisoners. Story is both cage and key. Story is what we use to cordon off those people, those people who are not like us, who are less than, those people who are evil, the terrorists, the women, the gays, the religious people, all those people we want to put in a box because we want power, we want to define this reality that we all share, that we're all a part of. But story is also key. Story is key when it turns us to each other, when it helps us recognize that we're all created equal and that means something. Story has the capacity to make us aware of the girl with a pink backpack, to help rally around her, but to also recognize that the problem is not that she was just born off into some little family over here that doesn't know what to do with this little genius. No, there are thousands of geniuses like her. The story that we need to tell and the story that we need to write is one that dismantles the cage. That's our freedom. That's our role as peacemakers, to tell stories that are keys to freeing us up from all of our cages so that we can build a new cage together, one in which we all inhabit, one in which we all have the potential to flourish. Greg Khalil is the president and co-founder of Telos. Telos equips American leaders and their communities to become fearless peacemakers. We help resource individuals with their expertise and relationships to effectively and relentlessly wage peace. If you're interested in helping support Telos, visit us at our website, telosgroup.org. You can help support these conversations and our organization by becoming a monthly donor. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and sign up for our newsletter, where you can hear the latest news about what conversations we're having, as well as updates on our new podcast, Undaunted. My name is David Gunger, and I want to thank you for listening. We hope that you'll stay curious. <laughs>